from 5 to 7 p.m. Right here on WCBN 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor.
listening to the Levine Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and uh, today I'm sitting here with Michael Dickman. Welcome, Michael, to the show. Thanks, T. <laughs> so glad that you're you're here. And um, uh, um, we we just played that song, uh, the the lovely Loretta Lynn um, tune with the gin fizz and the Portland, Oregon, as a little bit of um, a, a by an introduction of <laughs> Michael Dickman, um, chosen by me, not Michael. So no, uh, you're. Uh, that's where you were born, right? That's right. I grew up in Portland, in Southeast Portland. Southeast Portland, and then what was the the um, the town where you went to to high school? It's a little. Uh, I went to a private. I was lucky enough to go to a, a very small private high school um, just on the edge of Portland in Milwaukee, Oregon. Mil- Milwaukee, Oregon. High school was called LaSalle High School. It was a Christian Brothers High School. Ooh, did that mean you had to wear a suit? Almost. We had uniforms. Uh, but uh, I went to, I was kept in Catholic school through a series of amazing plans by my mother throughout growing up. Both, all, everyone in my family was. Really? So Catholic um, through and through. Well, hopefully, there, I think that things make sense in your poems now. That makes a lot of sense. See, all this banter that we have, even though it sounds like, you know, where did you go to high school? How can that possibly uh, illuminate poet Michael Dickman for us? It does. It really does. People um, that's, and and this is Michael Dickman, not Mike Dickman. If you Thank go you. on, if you Google him, do not be uh, mistaken. Who's fine, but he's, not me. He's fine. A very different poet. Yeah, right. And and he's, uh, my, this Michael Dickman is also not into alchemy. Um, but anyway, uh, more of the introduction. Michael's here today to read um, some of his poems uh, that will be uh, making up the book uh, titled "The End of the West." Um, and this book will is going to be published next year, Michael? Yeah, late next year, early 2009. Okay, all right, by Copper Canyon Press. By Copper Canyon Press, um, yeah. A really great, a really great press. Yeah. Um, and so, and you're just back in town here in Ann Arbor, yep. um, setting up shop for a little while. You're exactly. just back from Provincetown. Yep, uh, and uh, the Fine Arts Work Center out in Provincetown. Well, um, how was it? How was your How was your time there? It was great. It was great. The uh, the Fine Arts Work Center is a not-for-profit uh, place out in Provincetown, Massachusetts. It was started uh, in the mm, maybe early 70s, late 70s, by um, artists, American artists, people like Robert Motherwell, and um, and also some writers. Um, the amazing American poet Stanley Kunitz is attributed to having helped run the place, and uh, also Alan Dugan, who's a genius was a genius poet also. And um, they have uh, artists and writers come out and you spend the winter in uh, the very tiny and beautiful and stark uh, Provincetown and you just work. And do you think it's important that it's the winter time because it's stark then and, and <laughs> to give th- depth uh, to your work? If you're I, don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's the, um, it, it, any time out there is, is great. And uh, certainly there are less distractions in uh, Provincetown um, in the winter than in the summer. And uh, so there's certainly, um, you have more time to stare at the, your typewriter, your computer. Did you bring a typewriter with you when... I did not. I uh, I don't have a typewriter, um, and uh, so I just uh, used their computers. Okay. Is the place scrap pieces of paper and little right, cocktail napkins? Cocktail napkins and the like. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, um, so let's let's kind of wander through a little bit of your backstory then. Okay. Um, uh, 
So how did you get to Ann Arbor? Because usually, uh, well, not usually, but in the, f the few interviews that I've done, a lot of times I'm able to say, back in town, um, had had an MFA from Michigan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I was turned down by Michigan. Uh, uh, and so I didn't get to go here. Ah, uh, they're ruining the day. Which uh, actually was very turned out very lucky for me. Where did um, you go? I ended up going to a, an amazing place um, called the uh, Michener Center for Writers at uh, the University of Texas in Austin, which uh, in my mind, um, partly because I went there and for lots of other reasons, is uh, I think the one of the best uh, programs in the country. It's very lucky, I think, if you can go there. It's a three-year program, fully funded, with amazing people, and all you do is write. No teaching. That sounds blissful. It's blissful. It's, uh, not, it's that, not that teaching is bad, <laughs> but it's um, no, but yeah, to but it's focus pretty, on the work. Yeah, and, and it's pretty amazing. And it also encourages, doesn't it, um, uh, having another, uh, like being, also writing plays while you're there. Yeah, like a, yeah they ask you to do... Uh, two genres and so uh, mine was playwriting so you can do fiction and poetry or poetry and uh, playwriting or uh, screenwriting like did you did you bring any plays with you today i didn't could, no, uh, no, a radio no. play <laughs> I, I should have we could have i could have written a radio play called interview with a young writer <laughs> or something. Uh, next time but it was a great it was a great place i was really lucky Oh, so Austin has good memories. Did you go right from Portland to Austin? No, no, I lived here. Uh, I had friends out here, and uh, I just moved out here, and I worked as a cook in town. And I did that for a couple of years, and then uh, decided that I was tired of um, getting up so early every day, and uh, so applied for this this program. Why Why did you, but why did you pick Ann Arbor? Just because you had very good dear friends that were here? Yeah, that's or because the, the writing co community here? No, no, I, I knew nothing about the writing community. It was only because of my connection with people who were already, already here. And, um, and it's a, I really like it here. It's a great town. And so, um, so you're a chef as well. Yeah, I work as a cook. Yeah. So, so cook, um, uh, what other sort of, because that sounds like one of those writer jobs, like yeah. bartender, um, yeah. wait staff. Um, right. What other That's sort all of I've odd jobs? Had. The uh, the first job I had, um, I got when I was 12, turning 13. I worked under the counter for a, a butcher, uh, cleaning out uh, the butcher shop at the uh, end of the night. I was connected to a tiny little grocery store, and sometimes my, my twin brother, Matthew, who's also a, a poet, he's an amazing writer, um, we both worked there, and uh, that was our, our first job. At the butcher shop? At the butcher shop. And it was connected to a grocery store, and sometimes we would bag groceries or do bottle returns or things like that. But mostly we were in a freezer, like, um, scraping out a, um, like a beef-grinding machine. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty amazing thing to do at that age. Yeah. Did you, um, how did you come upon that? Was it a punishment? Like, no, was no, no, it, it was, <laughs> no, it wasn't a punishment. It wasn't a punishment. I mean, you've gone to Catholic school, yeah, so yeah. I'm sure there were plenty of punishments along yeah, the way. The punishments, were, the punishments were in Catholic school. No, the, um, the job was just needed. We all, uh, Matthew and I both worked um, from eighth grade on to help pay bills and things like that. We were raised uh, by this amazing uh, woman, uh, a single parent, and uh, my mother. And, um, and so we were uh, not expected, but needed at times to help out, to pay bills and things. So that's what we did. And, you just, and was the butcher shop down the, just down the street from yeah, your you, home? Yeah, you could walk. It was like a 20-minute walk. It was a nice walk. And um, and what yeah, what neighborhood did you grow the up? The neighborhood in? is called Lentz. It's a because your brother writes about that. Right? Yeah, it's a historically it's a and still is a, um, 
a very uh, struggling um, lower working class neighborhood. Uh, it's one of the historically in Portland, one of the two the most dangerous and crime-ridden neighborhoods in, in town. Although you don't realize such things when you're growing up. Because <laughs> um, it was seems the, normal? It just seems normal until you start, uh, like, at these Catholic schools, we would go for free to these schools. We didn't pay. And uh, my mother would do things like volunteer or things like that, and we would have to keep a certain, like, a very low grade average to stay. And uh, But then you would exchange stories about your neighborhood with your friends and then quickly realize that you lived in very different places. Also, sometimes they wouldn't be allowed to come over. Because of the neighborhood. Because of your neighborhood. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, I don't blame them. It it wasn't the hottest place in the world. I love it, Um, you know, but uh, that's because I'm from there. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll take a short break, and uh, we'll be be right back to talk more with Michael Dickman. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm sitting here happily with Michael Dickman. Um, so we were talking about uh, where you where you grew up, Michael, mm-hmm. going back to the root. That's right. Of, and, and it is, it's a lot of, there's a presence of um, your your presence of your past in your poems. So, yeah. and, and you're, you'll read us a few of them today too, right? Absolutely. Um, but Lentz was a bit of a, a was a bit of a, a rough a rough neighborhood. It was a very rough neighborhood. And yeah. and Oregon actually is one of the states where it's uh, economically been uh, sort of on the the lower spectrum, uh, right? For, yeah. for years and yeah, pe- we absolutely. Especially when you get outside of uh, Portland, you know, people. I mean, people do this in almost any state. They often uh, think of the state as the as the sort of biggest city that's in it or the the city that's doing the best but once you leave portland um you know oregon has a terrible history of uh um you know people who are starving and people who don't have any food and um out in the country you know farmers who are falling apart you know that's true because actually um i've I've been to well of course it's true it's not like you're going to come on the radio and start lying about oregon these are all i I only lie about oregon it's the only (laughs) thing i lie about (laughs) we will have documented facts (laughs) only michael on the show um but there was there was a poor farm just um just east uh 
that that a McMenamin's, a company bought up and, and uh, transformed yeah. into a bed and breakfast and golf course, right? Yeah. But it used to be a poor farm, and, and people uh, went there to maybe have a bite to eat and then uh, a sad end. Oh, well. It's always cheerful. I always work in something cheerful. Yeah, that's good. This yeah, hour. this is nothing but cheer. Inspirational. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> um, and so, so also... Um, you have one of your other jobs. You actually worked in the butcher shop, yeah. and you're also in movies. Yeah, that's a big jump. I had a few jobs before that, and then um, it's true that uh, both my brother and I, uh, well, you know, both my, my brother and I were both uh, um, really big into baseball, and uh, we were very, very good, and uh, it was very exciting for everyone involved until we hit uh, puberty, and then uh, we couldn't walk downstairs, and... Uh, and um, and so then uh, we also couldn't uh, hit anything or field anything and quickly did not um, make the team. And so my mother put us in a, um, for something to do, put us in like a local theater class for kids. And so we did do a lot of theater uh, growing up and then we ended up in doing a couple um you know, local movies. and uh, Would that include the film Blast? That would include the film Blast, yeah, <laughs> which was uh, a beautiful um, straight-to-video uh, movie where I uh, come on screen, steal someone's girlfriend, and then get uh, beat up for it quickly. <laughs> and you're you're thinking just like high school? Yeah, just I thought like, this, is, this is just like uh, going to the store in the morning in my neighborhood. This is fine. I can do this. <laughs> right. And then, but then you actually were in, like, what was your biggest film And then the, the only, the, the only other movie was uh, this very bizarre thing where my brother and I were cast in a Steven Spielberg movie called Minority Report, which uh, <clears throat> I think is the best job I've ever had. <laughs> and uh, Because and you had your own trailer or? Uh, because um, they give you, in Hollywood, they give you loads of money for nothing. Oh. And um, and so they would give us a lot of money and a lot of time. And uh, my brother and I sat in our uh, beautiful um, apartments and wrote poems, you know, the whole month that we were in Hollywood. Did, so when did you start writing poems, though? Was it just that we you had both, time on your hands we then? Both started in, we both started in high school um, for uh, different reasons. My brother started as something um, to do uh, while he was serving detention which was very constructive. I just sat in detention and stared at the wall. Uh, and I started um, writing, as I think a lot of people do, which is to get people to make out with me, which didn't work, really, but uh, but it did get me interested in, in writing. Both my brother and I were ho horrible, horrible students. And so anything that we were doing that was remotely connected to books was uh, sort of celebrated at home. And um, would you write these poems and then hand them to the person? Oh, yeah. And no, is that definitely. how it worked? Yeah, yeah, or did yeah. you just then try to um, uh, uh, memorize them and say yeah, them to them? Yeah, no, no. I would, I would give it to them. I was awful. I would, like, well, first I would steal them, basically, from people like Pablo Neruda. I mean, just uh, blindly steal. But that shows a remarkable intelligence right there. Well, it shows <laughs> who, something. Who to steal from <laughs> for love who poems? Steal <laughs> and, then, and then give them to um, uh, the girl and then... Uh, you know, be ignored. Oh, no. Uh, well, um, but then you weren't ignored for long because then you were, um, you were in Hollywood. And yeah. do you, do you always, do you feel like that's a story you never want to talk about again? Or was it, is it kind of a nice story? Because Sometimes I, it's, it's a nice story. It's, uh, it's not something that will ever happen again. And, uh, but it was, um, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And the here's the thing that, here's the last thing that I'll say okay. about it. Okay, okay. Which is if you, 
um, if you rent the movie at the very end of the movie, there's a scene where one of the characters, three of the characters, my brother and I included, are in this cabin. And, um, and we're all reading books. And the book that the, um, that the um, other character is reading, this woman, is reading is a book of poems by um, the great Nobel Prize winner Nellie Sachs, who was a, a German Jew um, who uh, escaped the Holocaust and was one of the only two people, along with Salon, who wrote in German. And as a present to Steven Spielberg, my brother and I bought him a very nice first edition of this book. Oh. And um, we were about to shoot the scene, and then uh, he stopped everything and um, took the prop book away from this actor and had her hold this book by Nellie Sachs and just read one of the poems to herself. And when the camera pans back, you can actually see Nellie Sachs's face on the back of... Uh, the book on screen and I so I thought that was really great you know bringing those poems to a movie by someone like Steven Spielberg who's worked so hard for right um, recognition of Holocaust uh, that's things. that's wonderful and that you were you and your brother Matthew were the reason yeah, that that book lucky. was in there <laughs> that's that's that is an amazing <clears throat> that's an amazing story um, so thank you for actually then giving some um, some like a moral quality to me asking you about Hollywood sure. too. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate Anytime. it. Keep, keeping me honest here yeah. on the radio. Um, well, let's see. Um, shall we? Can we hear? You have many long, long poems, and yeah. um, which I'm hoping we'll be able to hear some. Um, is there one that's a it's a, a bit shorter that we might hear before um, our midpoint, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I could read. Uh, um, I have a a small poem, and it's related to. Uh, okay, yeah, and it's related to um, the neighborhood that I grew up in. It's called Scary Parents. Oh, that would be great. Okay. I didn't shoot heroin in the eighth grade because I was afraid of needles, and still am. My friends couldn't not do it. Black tar, a leather belt, and sunlight. Scary parents. They filled holes all afternoon. Then we went to the movies. The gods swam inside them, upstream, and through wild parties, and stayed up all night, under their tongues, between their toes, their stomachs, all over their arms. Wings did not descend to wrap them up like babies, as promised. Still, there's a lot to pray to on earth. Everyone is still alive, if not here, then someplace else, climbing out of their arms. Resting their heads. On what? No one is singing us to sleep. Ian broke his mother's nose because she burned the pancakes. She left hypodermics between the couch cushions for us to sit on. Thank you, Michael. Sure. Um, so that's the home. That's the home front then. Well, that's the a neighborhood. Bit, like a slice of that. Yeah. My brother and I and our little sister Elizabeth were very lucky because we didn't encounter any violence like this in our own home. But it was certainly in the homes of all of our friends um, in the neighborhood around. And um, which, which reminds me, well, it's, I, when I'm reading the poems uh, that, that you sent me to read, Michael, um, I feel like there's an element of uh, quiet violence throughout all of them and maybe we can if if you're up for it maybe talk a little bit about that in our our second half um and maybe it's a quiet violence because 
it wasn't in your own home, but it was, mm-hmm. um, it sort of surrounded you mm-hmm, a sure. little bit, maybe. Um, well, let's see. Let's let's go ahead and we'll take a break, and then we'll come back with Michael Dickman. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. If you're just tuning in on your radio dial, my name is T. Hetzel, and today we have Michael Dickman here reading some of his poems, and um, we're talking about his life, um, <laughs> which is really great. Uh, you have you have friends, but sometimes you don't know their, their history or, or pieces of their life. I guess I know a little bit about, you told one story about how you and a friend went into a convenience store once. Um, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> want to lead us off with that one, Michael, that story? Well, sure. Like, um, I mean, this story is just, uh, that was a story uh, also about the neighborhood. And, um, and uh, it was a story about, um, uh, you know, the, my friends in the neighborhood um, were often in trouble, as were their parents. And uh, the time that uh, he's talking about, I walked into a convenience store with a loaded gun in my back pocket to steal candy bars and who knows what else and uh, but those sorts of things were happening um a lot in that neighborhood and there wasn't um uh any poems in the neighborhood do you know there wasn't any like uh there wasn't a community center anymore really there was one but it was sort of falling apart and uh there was no theater there was no sort of other outlets or anything and you, and then your mom had you in schools that were outside of the community. She had us in schools that were outside of the community. Um, the one year that we went to a school that was inside of the community, it was a complete disaster, and we were my brother and I were kicked out several times. So um, you've had sort of, so you've had this. Um, this is now not an ad for <laughs> the, the educational system, right? But, no, no, no. But, but, um, but so you've had sort of this you, resistance to um, maybe enforced education that was being um, put upon you. But what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both both of my brother and I, as I said, we were horrible uh, students. I think we were bright kids, but we were just really bad students. And um, and I think both of us, I know for myself, I was very lucky to sort of find something in uh, poems that belonged to me 
and that did not belong to even an inspiring teacher in grade school or high school, but that was mine all by itself. And, um, and it was also lucky that also my twin brother was finding a similar thing. And then both of us could go out and, um, as we did and find, uh, poems and poets that we liked we would go to bookstores which was unheard of for us and uh, try to search out these things we would read um you know for hours what hours age hours. are you talking <clears throat> this about is, this is high school this is late i mean like i didn't read this is like middle high school but you had mentioned earlier that you had already found naruda in high school because you were yeah, using was, him exactly to so my woo. sophomore year you know, I bought a book by Naruto to impress a girl, and uh, I read uh, it from cover to cover in two sittings and couldn't believe what was happening on the page. It sounds very corny, but it was very, uh, a very important sort of well, time. It changed you then. Yeah, and then I went and I read everything in English translation of Naruto's um, at the same time that I was doing no reading for high school or turning any work in at all. Uh, yes. Um, but it was very important and... Uh, to have something that was that belonged to me to you you know yes to one's self how did how did you make then where did you go after neruda like what after after that uh you know my brother was reading different people he was reading people like ann sexton and then we discovered um this amazing poet charles bukowski um who people give a real hard time to yeah but you know he's uh was an amazing writer maybe needed an editor. Um, but like, so we read him and then we would read, uh, people who were blurbing the back of the books and things like that. And, and then we found our way into people like Philip Levine and Galway Cannell and, and people like that. So, so mostly, <clears throat> would you say when you were younger, mostly, mostly male poets and then Mo- except yeah, for Anne Sexton, mostly right? male poets, okay. except for Anne Sexton and, and Sylvia Plath. Oh, and, and Sylvia um, Plath. And right. them because they were very tough and cool. Yes. And because they had killed themselves. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so mostly, mostly male, male poets. And, um, and so, so that's sort of an education, well, a way of uh, a personal education, like a way of finding knowledge that really you, pe- people, teachers in schools are hoping to sort of ignite in, in the students themselves. Yeah. So you, you managed to somehow do it on your own. And it's sort of a life thing now, De- right? Yeah, uh, no, definitely <laughs> uh, some sort of a life thing. And, uh, <laughs> but it was very important in that time um, in high school and immediately after high school, in my mind, is really... Uh, sort of dear to me um just those quiet moments finding these things out by myself and not being told or pointed or given assignments or things like that i think it's very important that is that's a bit of a miracle isn't it that is a miracle okay um will you read for us michael uh let's see i'm going to read um i'm going to read a poem i'm going to read one elegy and then i'm going to read uh um a poem about a painting. Super. Yes, yes. Uh, the first is an elegy to uh, my older brother, and um, the poem is called Dead Brother Superhero. You don't have to be afraid anymore. His super outfit is made out of handfuls of garbage blood and fastened together by stars, flying around the room like a mosquito. Drinking all the blood, or whatever we have, to save us, who need to be saved. I whispered to the rescue, 
and sat on the dead edge of my bed all night and all morning. My feet did not touch the floor. My heart raced. I counted my breath like small white sheep and pinned my eyes open and stared at the door. Any second now. Any second now. He saved my brain from its burning building. He stopped and started the bullet in my heart with his teeth. Just like that. He looked down from outer space through all the clouds, the birds dropping like weights. He looked out from the center of the earth through the fire he was becoming, his cape sweeping the floor. He stood in the doorway and closed his eyes. <clears throat> and so... Uh, I love that poem. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for picking that one to read. Um, this next poem is a poem called Dance Night. It's about a series of paintings by um, a friend of mine who was also at the Fine Arts Work Center named Stephen McClure. Um, you won't, uh, it doesn't matter that none of us listening or talking right now can see these paintings, um, but okay. I'll tell you very quickly that they're very dark watercolors of people dancing at night. And uh, his series is called Dance Night, and the title of this poem is also called Dance Night. Dance Night. Soon our parents will be home to put us to bed spread their dark wings and kiss us goodnight. An ice cube singing in their drinks. They'll say our prayers and walk downstairs and lay the needle down inside the old record. Open all the windows and open all the doors. Rock the mosquitoes to sleep between the flower petals in the folds of your dress. Hike up your dress. The mosquitoes are going to hell. The all-black mosquito string band is screaming the empty bed blues, cakewalking babies, and hellish ways. Oh, you sweet mistreater. Dance across the floor, mosquitoes hanging from your fingers, and open all the windows, and open all the doors. Who made your bed? Jesus did. He tucked in your sheets, he fluffed your pillow. Who walks on the water? Jesus does. On the tips of his shoes, waving his hands about. And catches all the fish? Jesus. With both hands, all the fish, all the whales, all the sharks. Who wrote the hell on Church Street Blues? Who dragged you from the back of a truck into the woods? Who did this to you? Jesus. Whose night is this? Jesus' night. Whose dogs? Jesus's. Jesus' dogs killing everything they see at the end of Jesus' leash. Again and again, he is the only answer for this world. Soon, our parents will be home to spread their dark wings and kiss us full of black light. Sitting up in our white beds, shining all night, waiting to fall asleep forever. Come and go with me, he said. Our feet are dirty, but we all have feet. We're children once more, and we all have feet, and we all have shoes, and we all have wings. Thank you, Michael. Sure. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the presence of family in, in your work. Um, and... I, it's it's interesting because I thought 
um, by now, surely we would have had a poem more that forefronts your mom mm. or, or, or your father in light. Yeah. And, um, but, but the parents appeared in, in, in Dance Night, and, yeah. and your elegy was for your, your older brother. Yeah. So, so what, is it, um, what is it like to have your family so present within almost each of the poems that I've read that you're writing. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, on a, um, uh, on one level, it's very tricky. Um, because, um, uh, you know, my parents are still around and, uh, you know, um, my, my grandfather isn't, but my grandmother is. And, um, all of my siblings are except for my older brother. And, um, and if they want, uh, they can find some sort of access to these things. And, um, but the thing to, uh, remember, um, is that uh, none of this, this stuff is uh, autobiography. And it's very difficult, I think, for people, it was when I started reading, um, to remember that, I think, with poems. Like, um, you know, someone can write a novel about um, a uh, University of Michigan professor who mm, fools around with a student and drives a Datsun and um, his marriage has fallen apart. And that's a novel, and then you look at... Um, the person, you know, like uh, his bio, and he says he works at UM, he fooled around students, he's got a Dotson and his And people are like, what a great novel. Fiction is amazing. But then, you you know, someone reads a poem where there's an I in it, mm-hmm. or a family member, and they automatically think that it's autobiography. The um, That's one sort of uh, half answer to this thing. And then the other thing um, is that at least for me, I have nowhere to start from except for my own life. And um, I don't, uh, I try as much as possible not to use people. I hope that I'm not using family members or friends. Um, and, uh, but uh, they are what I remember when I sit down to write. And um, so they are sort of um, uh, the only starting point that I really have. Um, are those people. And then from there, you know, clearly um, my older brother probably isn't flying around in a cape. But, um, you know, but we take these sorts of things from our lives and then expand on them in a piece of art, which is a poem. Right, right. But the idea of your older brother flying around in the cape is very true because it's a way of understanding like the spirit spirituality so I guess when you say I understand how the eye isn't at all uh, doesn't especially in poems doesn't have to be the the eye of the poet Um, but I would I would I have a problem understanding um, uh, that the the distance there because I I almost feel like um, it, it must be the underlying truth of the story is is real right absolutely. is that, that what you're saying yeah, but yeah, not absolutely. Um, but not in fact that your childhood kitchen was yellow exactly yeah okay yeah for sure um, do you uh, would you want me to read a poem that has a family member another sure. one in it sure or yes, should we please just do. talk more no please read please read another poem um, so uh, this one is called My Father Full of Light. and uh, I love this one. Oh, good. Thanks. T- like, um, this is a, a poem about, uh, um, as, as much as I can, trying to remember something. I didn't grow up with my father, which um, for me was a lucky thing, but uh, this is me trying to remember something. My Father Full of Light. Tonight, 
The moths are beating themselves up against the screen door. It looks like smoke. So does the light inside his rings, his wristwatch. The blood swimming around in his face, enlightening blotches beneath his skin, like the residue of beets on a cutting board. Also emitted light. A blizzard of wings. He thinks God is going to clean everything up. Hands made from light and feathers, moving us around, dusting us off. Everything settling back into the warm colors of autumn, instead of getting ground down into glass. Which, I get the feeling, diamond after diamond, is what's really going to happen. I could have whatever I wanted, once a year. Whatever you want, it's on me. Coconut cream pies, rotated slowly behind bright windows, like the cities of heaven. The register sang. Flies collected on our water glasses. My father, for a moment, was full of light. Men came and went. I knew our waiter was the son of someone. Thank you, Michael. Sure. So that was recreating. Uh, so just to to go back to what we were saying. Yeah. Um, so you weren't sitting in in a diner with your dad ever, but this was a way of getting to the underlying feeling of your father. Yeah, like there's maybe a very tiny sliver of a childhood memory that has to do with some sort of a restaurant, mm -hmm. something about a birthday. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, one thing uh, I think for a lot of writers, and it's certainly true of me, uh, maybe it's not true of a lot of writers, but uh, I want to remember things really 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 well and um and so um like i can't write after i have say a beer or something you know like a because all i want to do is remember something really really well and um uh through this memory and um through writing bring something out about it thank you we'll take we'll take a short break here you're listening to um michael dickman's poetry and uh wcbn fm ann arbor uh we'll be right back <laughs> Suffering through the night 
Whiskey or God? <laughs> Here we are, back with Michael Dickman. Or both. <laughs> or both. <laughs> All right, cheers. Um, on the Living Writers Show. Um, so, so Michael, your poems are um, uh, have an, uh, they they use the landscape of the page in really interesting ways. And I know we can't beam the vi- the poems out visually, and um, but I think it comes across how you read them as well so the so everyone listening can um can probably even sense that there's a word that's by itself on a line and that there's um larger pauses between moments in mm-hmm. the in the poem um is that how did that happen when you sort of uh putting the weight on the words and and using the space so much space around them it happened uh, um like there's something uh, maybe if you're listening like um uh, often a um, a uh, a poem that we can all maybe imagine right now is one that's in a column, you know, and it's mm-hmm. uh, just like one space between each line. It's a column, and um, uh, and so the poem, the things that I'm reading have uh, a lot of space between lines. They have short lines and long lines, and uh, so keeping that in mind, um, the. the this came about for me, I think, just wanting to do something besides writing, like be a painter, or um, where all the these poems that I'm reading are uh, in a sequence, so they're like three sections or five sections or things like that, and um, which um, in my mind has a lot to do with uh, how much I like movies. And um, uh, uh, years ago, I read a, a, a brilliant, brilliant book called The Conversations, which is a book of interviews between the writer Michael Andante and the great film editor Walter Murch. Yes. And Murch in this book um, talks about um, taking um, uh, stills and uh, putting them up on a wall and moving them around and, and then looking at them out of sequence. Because we don't, as people, understand the world in a straight narrative line, you know, like right. um, like you know sitting here across from you now like i'm thinking about um uh these all these pages in front of us but also there's um posters for bands behind you and i'm thinking wow i've never you know seen and listened to that band and and there are these guys behind a window looking at us and things like that so there's all these things happening and it's not a straight line and um so i started uh taking writing a poem in sections and then putting it up on a wall and moving it around to see if a different kind of story could come out of it. Um, it sounds maybe fancier than it really is, which is just kind of like messing around and finding something to do with your time when you can't sit down and write. Um, but it is very important to me thinking about how a story is going to get told in a poem. And then <clears throat> the space and how it looks on the page, um, many very, very smart very good writers will tell you that this is ridiculous and you should not waste your time doing it. Um, but it's very important to me. And so, um, 
how things uh, look because we look at something and we ha- it has an emotional quality, even if it's just typed up letters on a page, if that makes sense. It does. And it's also, as you're also keeping it, um, <clears throat> as you said, a physical object when you're, uh, you're printing out the pages or right. writing them out and then moving them maybe with tape or sure. so, so it's very physical. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and th- so I think that's an important quality of your work. Yeah. It's also good even, you know, just to get up from what you're doing and move around a room. Some calisthenics, <laughs> Some calisthenics and poetry. A little exercise. Right. For God's sakes, go to the YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> Lift up the poetry book. Um, no, so so that, do you feel like when you're moving the pieces of the poems around that um, that you're keeping the sections that you believed were sections whole? And then, or, and then, but they're creating a new way of looking at it. Exactly. Or is there new, creating, are new words coming in? They're creating a new way of looking at it, and then certainly you um, inevitably end up doing more rewriting on those on those sections. So it's not just it's not just a thing where you write uh, the poem in five sections, put it up on a wall, put the first one last, the second one third, and then it's, de- right, it's, it's done. Right. It's nothing but, so simplistic. Yeah, but you move. I mean, I move it around a lot, and um, and then. Uh, you know, see if something, and sometimes it goes back to how it was, mm-hmm. if nothing interesting is happening. But. And and it's interesting that you say that there's sections, but they're they're unmarked except with maybe an asterisk That's right, they're or unmarked. extra space. That's right. right. And I, I really enjoy that too. Instead of like Roman numeral one. And yeah. Then, my friend uh, who I grew up writing with, along with my brother Carl Adamschick, who's an amazing uh, poet, lives on the West Coast. Um, he was always against uh, numbers in a poem because um, they weren't letters. <laughs> uh, so he never had like a, a time never. or a date or anything never, no, in no there numbers, or a, <laughs> just words oh that's kind of wonderful um well that's a good idea carl right yeah. good, jo- good job <laughs> uh, buddy um would you would you like to read another poem for sure us? i'll read a i'll read another poem um and this poem has a lot of space on it so you could Try to imagine. So yeah, so yeah. Be the white space uh, in your the, mind. Be the white space in your mind. This is uh, this poem is called uh, "Another Time," and um, there's a uh, quote by the great Polish poet Adam Zagievski um, in the beginning of the poem. Um, he says, "I don't exist yet. How fortunate! I can hear everything." Another time. The roaring twenties, or your parents in love taffeta and gibsons your heart doesn't exist yet your eyes don't things were better and worse you never got laid and you couldn't kill anyone your grandfather making his way down the hall floating in amber ice on all the pine trees bright needles Over and over, the gentle sound of broken glass. Your mouth doesn't exist yet. Your teeth don't. You bite down on nothing. Darkness when it got dark, and light when it got light. Stars visible for miles and miles, everywhere and all at once. Your fingers don't exist yet. Your arms don't. Your grandmother gets her first period. A drop of blood rolling down the hallway forever. Your throat doesn't exist yet. Your tongue is nothing but sunlight. Your stomach is still buried in the earth. 
your intestines are invisible. Your parents in love, somewhere, your parents are walking towards each other. The old neighborhood just starting. Soon it will be time to listen again and begin to see again. Thank you. Sure. How, Michael, how aware are you of reoccurring obsessions within your poems or images, like body parts, yeah. God, family, mm-hmm. certain uh, colors? Very aware um, after uh, the poem is, is done is or, or when it's in, when I'm working on like a 50th draft or something. Um, but not during, um, and uh, but I do think it's lucky. Um, it's lucky to have obsessions if you're writing or if you're doing art of any kind. A lot of people, um, you know, uh, they say things like, uh, um, "Gosh, when are you going to stop writing about your father? Or stop whining about your ex-wife or something in your novels or plays or poems or your paintings or whatever." But I think it's very lucky if you do have an obsession. Um, uh, because it um, will always sort of refill the sort of wellspring uh, for you, um, which is nice if what you want to do is make art. I wonder if it's that, that these also make them more of a part of a, a series. Like this will, instead of being something like a, a theme mm-hmm. that some books have, but whereas these like even stars, glass, mm-hmm. like these are reoccurring um, throughout the ones that I've read yeah. and what you've just read now a new, a yeah. new poem to me they, they certainly can and, and maybe at their best they might have an echo to them as you go through a series of the poems or you know if you and i guess you can't know can you if these images will go through with you to the next um whatever yeah. comes next not really you know you can some people will make up rules you know and right. um, and do things like like that, which sometimes you might have to do because the tricky part is is um, tr- you don't want to turn your obsession into like a kicking dog or something or like a trick, uh, right? Yeah, you know, that your, you drag spiel. out. Yeah, yeah, you don't want it yeah. to be a spiel, and you don't want uh, you don't want to be sitting there and thinking, oh well, I'm stuck on this. How about um, something about um, stars and dad? <laughs> and uh, then oh, now we're cooking, uh, and then keep going. So you want to be. You know, you want to be careful. And like I said, at least for me, at least right now, um, it's very, uh, very unconscious um, thing, but hopefully uh, not sloppy. No, no, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way at all. Um, this has been, I've so enjoyed this this conversation oh, with too. you, Michael. Um, and, and we're drawing close to the end of our time. So, um Thanks for coming to the show and reading your poems. And Thanks. and I know you said it's 2009, perhaps? Possibly early 2009. Early, two, so we'll just, we'll have to, but your poems will be out in the world in some other yeah, ways. They're, they're out, they're out there. So, yeah, but don't be, don't be fooled by like a couple of the other like yes, l- uh, um, know, websites. that know what you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so thanks for being here today. Hey, and, and please do come back on the show to, oh, to talk to. more about poetic ideas and um, what uh, else would you like to say, Michael Dickman? I, I just want to say uh, very quickly that uh, I love you, Duke, wherever you are. 
Okay, we've got a, a shout out there. And um, well, thank you for listening today to the Living Writers Show. Um, thanks to Chaz Barrett for being our stellar engineer, as always. Um, thanks to those uh, listening and streaming in Seattle, Chicago, Florida, and uh, the outer lying universe. And thank um, you, T. <laughs> thank, thank you, Michael. Um, and uh, this is T. Hetzel. Uh, until next time. Radio News for Wednesday, August 15, 2007. From KPFK in LA, I'm Aura Bogado. On today's newscast, we'll hear what organized labor is looking for in a presidential platform, a travel and commercial crossing ban, along with an international boycott against Hamas, is creating a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, and DC Metro's city government threatens the Answer Coalition with more than $10,000 worth of fines. For promoting an upcoming march. Those stories and more after the headlines.
I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. The death toll from a series of suicide bomb attacks near the city of Mosul in Iraqi Kurdistan has passed 250. Emergency workers and local residents are still searching through the wreckage left by yesterday's blasts. The near-simultaneous truck bombs targeted the Yazidis, an ethnically Kurdish community which practices an ancient religion that predates Islam. The American military has blamed the attack on Muslim extremists opposed to the practice of the Yazidi religion. In addition to the more than 250 confirmed deaths, at least 350 people were injured, making it the single deadliest attack since the start of the occupation. Canada has a new defense minister as a result of changes made in the prime minister's cabinet. Stefan Christophe reports from Montreal. Canada's Minister of National Defence, Gordon O'Connor, was the first to go in a reshuffle.